I'm Jax Emlicka, and welcome to the first episode of our 2016 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Strengthening Your Strip-Tilled Soils with Cover Crops and Other Ecological Tools, is being brought to you by Thurston Manufacturing, manufacturers of Blue Jet products. Well, I would encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you have another app that you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to try to get it added to our list. And subscribing will allow you to get an alert about upcoming episodes in this series when they're released. Thanks again to Thurston Manufacturing. For more than four decades, Thurston Manufacturing has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.bluejet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. When thinking about the different pieces that make up a successful strip-till system, it's easy to focus on the above-ground elements because those are the most visible throughout the growing season. But beneath the soil surface is where the benefits of a strip-till system really start, nurturing soil health by promoting microbial and organic activity to naturally produce needed nutrients. Developing a sustainable ecological environment is critical to maintaining and evolving an efficient and productive strip-till system. So says Jill Clapperton, soil scientist with Rhizoterra Inc. in Spokane, Washington. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Thurston Manufacturing, we welcome in Jill to share her experience-based advice for improving soil health, utilizing cover crops, how to bolster organic matter content, and understand the correlation between crop diversity and nutrient availability. is really about how everything is connected and so what we're really looking for is so what I want to start is by having everybody understand that everything that you do is interconnected so whether you're grazing whether you're stitching pastures so we're seeding different things into the pasture those things are all connected Um, everything that you do on your farm is connected the culture your own farm culture that is, you, the practices that you do, what makes your agroecosystem unique on your farm, those things are all connected too because that really determines the profitability of the farm, what technology you choose, what plants you choose, what rotations you have. And all that is about Gaia. All right, well, that worked. Um, so, the, I think I can just use my mouse here and we can see. Soil health, so here we are, soil health is really a function of the biology and the chemical and physical properties of the soil. Now, I put the biology at the top because it unites the chemical and the physical properties of the soil, and that gives us soil health, and that's also related to soil quality because you can't have soil quality without soil health, so those things are all interconnected. The environmental quality and the, you know, and the nutrient density of the plants are also connected. What we want is we want all the nutrients from the plant, from, the, from our soils, to go into our plant. We don't want anything running off. We don't want anything leaching out. That's the whole point of this. And we're in an area here where Mississippi is, is important. And all those watersheds are, you know, and, and the nitrogen that's going in there is blamed on farmers. So we need to think about this a lot more. Not that that's true, but we still need to think about it and we need to be active and proactive about doing that and about thinking about it and trying to do something about it. So 
the key thing to a healthy soil is soil structure. And so all of you are involved in building soil structure because you're all doing some form of minimum tillage or no tillage. And that's the really important thing. You can't build soil structure at all if you're tilling all the time. If you're, because, let's face it, these animals are taking the time to modify the soil structure. They're building a habitat in that soil. So it would be like you building a town. They've built a town below ground, a whole city below ground. And if we keep disturbing it all the time, they have to rebuild it. And that takes a lot of energy. And some species just won't do that anymore. So it would be kind of like me taking a big plow through this room. If I was doing tillage all the time, I'd take a plow through this room. And well, some of you will get away right, because you'll be fast enough to run and hit that door. Some of you will not get away and I'll recycle your nutrients, which is why tillage works. And tillage has worked, you know, I mean, the first reports on tillage were in 1790 in a book by Jethro Tull. I'm going to date some of you here because some of you are thinking about the band. I know you are. Um, but Jethro Tull wrote the first book on on really on tilling and plowing up the prairie and how effective that was in recycling the nutrients. We've also learned from history, and I say historically because we have learned historically. In history, we've seen from 100 years ago and even more than 100 years ago in Urbana, Illinois, they did studies on corn and they showed that when you grew corn after Wheat, well, it was okay. When you grew corn after corn, it wasn't all that good. When you grew corn after a mixed forage, it was outstanding, and they had a 20 to 30% yield increase, and that was in 1840. Is that right? Yes, it is. So that was a long time ago. And so you see, we, the cover crops and soil health has been understood for a really long time. So what about properties? So what happens? Well, if we have really good soil structure, we root better. And if the roots are growing fast and they can move through the soil really easily, diseases can't catch up with them. Because disease organisms are crappy competitors. And so they are looking for any way they can, including chemical means, and they are actually exuding chemicals to slow the roots down so they can hop on and disease the plant, cause disease in the plant. So if we have good soil structure, we're going to root more effectively. The other thing is, is that we're going to have more lateral roots, more branching roots. And those roots are going to connect the soil particles to the plant all the time. So as we deplete the water and the nutrients around the plant, those lateral roots are going to hold on. The mycorrhizae that are in the plant are going to extend and hold the soil structure together. And we are going to have much healthier plants. And this talk is all about when we use plants, when we use plants to create soil structure, then we actually start to build soil health. Because the most biologically active, and there's no questions asked here, biologically active part of your soil is the root. That's where all the action is happening. Because the root's leaking things, and, and the root's leaving cells, and all the organisms are in and around that root. That root is creating a better soil structure for itself. You look at that, and you can see here. This is the root channel here. And, we, and, this, is, and this root channel, actually, this is an earthworm channel here. These are the roots down in here. When we look at that, we see the oxidized carbon. We're starting to build soil all the way down the profile. That's why roots are so important, because we see them on the topsoil, but if we get a few roots down below, we start putting carbon below, we can start extending the profile of our soil and the nutrient cycling of our soil. And we start building more structure deep down. That means more water holding capacity. That means that the water actually percolates better. All these things are really important. Now, with the earthworm channel, um, Earthworms actually leave, have a slime on their bodies, which everybody knows. 
And when that slime coats the walls of their burrow, it leaves carbohydrates behind, and it leaves a lot of calcium. And if the earthworms are really well-fed, it leaves ammonia. And if the earthworms aren't that well-fed, nothing bad about that, they leave nitrates. So either one, the plant's going to benefit from. And those plants are going to move down that channel because it's easy. But the other thing they're going to do is they're going to like being down there because the plant growth promoting rhizobacteria also live on those channels because of the ammonia, because of the nitrate, because of the carbohydrates. So it's all about that as well. Now, predator, predators are really responsible for cycling everything in the soil. It's all about the predators. Predator-prey relationships are where it's at. We can't recycle all the bacteria that are in the soil and all the fungi that are in the soil if we don't have predators. What you see there is an amoeba. This is an amoeba here. And these ones can move into the finest cracks. They just flatten themselves, and they just kind of mobilize around like a big jelly. But they are going to eat a lot of bacteria, and then what they're going to do is concentrate it all into their waste products, and, they're all, and that's all happening in and around the roots of the plants. So the plants are really getting the benefit of all these activities. The other thing is, is that these, not the protozoa so much, but some of the other things we're going to talk about, they eat the fungi, and that means that we're actually eating disease organisms as well, which means that we're also reducing those populations. So bacteria, when we talk about microbes, the microbes are really the primary producers. They're the food for everything else. And we don't have mineralization. We don't have soil structure. We don't have, we don't have plants getting more nutrients if we don't have predator-prey relationships. So let's talk about creating a root canopy. That's sort of the little background on soil biology there. Let's talk about creating a root canopy. Because we're, we're here to build soils, right? I mean, all of you are embracing strip-till or no-till or adding grazing to your systems or putting cover crops in because you want to improve your soil health. That's the goal. Some people are going to say, well, so what? Well, if we increase the organic matter, and not just any organic matter, the quality of organic matter, and we start feeding our below-ground livestock, we are going to have some other benefits as well. Increased cation exchange capacity, increased water holding capacity. And increased water holding capacity also means better drainage. It means when we're inundated and we've got flood situations, our organic matter is still holding on to nutrients. So when it dries, we still have some access to some nutrients. So all those things are important. When you are building a cover crop, that's what you're looking to do. When you are putting companions between the rows, that's what you're looking to do. You're looking to fill the profile. Now, the last thing we want, if we're going to do companions or mulching or something, is to actually compete with our cash crop. That's not a clever thing. So if our cash crop is corn and we know that it's going down quite deep, then we're going to put a shallow plant in. Now, today in the workshop, we saw when we looked at all the root, the root balls that came in, that you could tell the corn that had cover crops because it had all these fine roots right near the surface because the, the, the roots and the mycorrhizas were mining the residues that were left from the cover crop and feeding the main plant. And then we had the roots going down. So it was really interesting. You could see how the roots were adapting to where the nutrients are. We had another one where it was clear that the fertilizer had been placed deeper down in a deep band. And so we had a whole bunch of really fine roots in the band to take up the fertilizer. And then we had coarser ones coming down and out of there. All of that is indicative of where you've placed your fertilizer, where the plants are getting their nutrients. And we want all of that. We want more roots. The, the organisms in the soil want more roots. All of that means we have better soil structure. Now, above ground diversity, this is the Monet cover crop. This was created in France. That's why we call it the Monet one. But it also has the Monet colors. And this, this particular farmer created this um, to please his wife, because she was bored with his other cover crops, looking out her kitchen window. 
And so he also, what he also found was that by creating this cover crop with all the flowers is the pollinators, and he's, he really, he just annihilated his insect problems for the next year because he had all these beneficial insects that he'd bred with this particular cover crop. So when we're thinking about cover crops, we're thinking about function. Um, and, you know, a lot of times we're looking above ground and we look at all this plant biomass and we go, oh yeah, this is good. Well, does all that plant above ground biomass have just a little tiny bit below the ground, or does it have a lot? People say, well, I don't have time to grow a cover crop because, well, there's that short window. But a lot of you, when you're thinking of crops, are thinking, well, it's got to be this tall, and it's got to really be mature and things. No, no, no. Every time you grow a green plant, you're putting all this carbon into the ground, and you're getting all these root exudates. And that's what we want. So we always want to have, for as long as you can have a green plant, have one, even if it's only this much above ground, because remember, the plants that we choose are going to have a lot more root mass. So even if we just have a little tiny plant like the faba beans that you see up there, they'll have a little tiny stalk about this big, and then they'll have a root system this big. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking for. And when I talked about the Gaia theory, this is all the roots intermingled. You see them all touching each other? We're going to talk a little bit about mycorrhizas later on. All these plants will be colonized by mycorrhiza, and they're all touching each other. They're sharing. Now, people don't understand this a whole lot because we're not taught this all the time, but plants share with one another. In a plant community, the plants are sharing. The mycorrhizas are moving nutrients from plants that have enough to plants that don't have enough. They're moving nitrogen from plants that are making nitrogen to plants that need nitrogen. They are shifting. They are the pipeline. They are your network. And all these plants are networked. In a corn crop that relies on mycorrhiza in order to grow really well, that network is going to be networking all those plants in the row, moving the carbon around, moving the amino acids, moving the nitrogen, moving the phosphorus. So what plants really take advantage of mycorrhiza? Well, this would be a weed. This is knapweed. It's a really bad weed in the West. And look at all the mycorrhizas in that. Why are weeds so mycorrhizal? Most weeds are highly mycorrhizal. Because it gives them the advantage for space. They can colonize ground faster than plants that don't have it because the mycorrhizas are making even marginal ground more of, of the nu nutrients in marginal ground more available to the plant. Corn normally would be very mycorrhizal, and that's where you would talk to your breeders and the people that are supplying your seed and talk to them about the roots, talk to them about mycorrhizas, and see what they say, because they should be talking about it themselves. Sunflowers. Um, Think of the depth that they're reaching. I always put sunflowers in my mixes. I'll put safflowers in my mixes. The idea being that they open the ground. The other thing about sunflowers is sunflowers are very compatible with corn. They're very compatible with soybeans. They're highly mycorrhizal. They build mycorrhizas. They build soils. They will actually be beneficial to the next crop. So we need to think about that. And the thing is, is that we have, this is a, a quote from David Tillman. And David Tillman is an eminent ecologist, plant ecologist from the University of Minnesota. And there isn't anything about grasslands that he hasn't really worked on. Um, and the one thing we see is that when we increase the diversity in our systems, we make the systems more resilient and resistant to drought, to floods, to pretty much the things that Mother Nature can throw at us. And part of that's just by making the soils more stable, the soil structure more stable. So what we're going to, um, and the diversity, I, I want to say something here about diversity for the sake of diversity. Um, we hear a lot about Gabe Brown, and I know Gabe Brown pretty well, and he talks about we just, you need diversity, diversity, diversity. I actually disagree. Um, I think that 
when we use cover crops, we want to be selective. We want to pick them for the properties that we want to correct or this, what we want to do to the soils. For example, if I'm, um, we were in West Virginia, there was, a farm, there was a farmer there that had put way too much turkey litter on his ground. Uh, he thought he was doing the right thing. And there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. And what was happening is the phosphorus was accumulating in his ground. And now he has more phosphorus than you've ever seen. Um, and when you have too much phosphorus, what's happening? Limiting nitrogen. It also ties up phosphorus, believe it or not. And so he's actually, in order to grow crops, he needs to actually free phosphorus. And he has to add more nitrogen, which is kind of hard to believe because he has all that turkey litter that was in there. So what we've been using is we've been using buckwheat as a crop. He's been growing buckwheat as a crop to mine his phosphorus and to start make it more mobile so that we can actually deal with it. That is a plant solution. So when you're thinking about putting in a cover crop, when you're thinking about using plants, when you're thinking about crops, do I have a problem here? Think about a crop that might solve some of your problems. Think about a crop that will break, we talk about rotation all the time, breaking disease. How many of you know that oats, how many of you think about oats? Do your grandfather talk about oats? Yeah. Oats are a cleanup crop, right? You had a problem, you grew oats. That's what you did. So why do you think that is? Well, it's not just about the roots. The shoots themselves, when the, 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 the oat leaves fall on the ground, they inhibit the germination of sclerotinia. So you use oats in your cover crop before you grow soybeans so you can reduce the disease pressure. So these are some of the reasons. It's not just about organic matter. There's all these other benefits to all doing that. And that's what we need to think about when we're doing this. It's all about the root exudates. And I can't stress that enough. That's why I showed you that picture. The more roots we put in the ground, the more carbon we leak into the ground, the more oxidized carbon we have, the better soil structure we have. Again, it's that whole connectedness. Now, this is how it all works. Everybody thinks of photosynthesis as sugars. It's not. It's not just sugars. It's amino acids. It's organic acids, and it's carbohydrates. Most of our available nitrogen in the soil comes from amino acids. So let's look at that in that chart. You corn, no surprise that corn mostly gives off nitrate because, well, what's it doing? It's a nitrate scavenger, too. Oats the same. See where we've got four colors on the beans and the peas? That's why you grow legumes because they put four different kinds of nitrogen into the soil and into the rhizosphere, which builds your diversity. Which means that when we use those plants, we're actually building the diversity of microorganisms because we're feeding them a diverse diet. And that's just the nitrogen. I haven't shown you the organic acids and the mixtures of carbohydrates that all these different plants exude. But this is why diversity drives all those below ground things. It's why it changes disease patterns. It's why it, you get more mineralization, and you get more nitrogen available from certain things. It's this what's happening. This and this is not new data. This comes from 1972. This work was done by an Australian named John Pate. I stumbled on this in a book I was reading and went, oh my gosh, this explains it all. This is why some of the things that we do work so well. So again, one of my favorite plants that I'm working on right now are faba beans, mostly because faba beans are for us in the Pacific Northwest a cool bean. And they would be for you too. They're cool season. You can plant them early. They like cool weather at the start, and then they like it hot afterwards. That's how they grow. They're edible beans. You can sell them for cover crops. Most of the cover crop places are out of that seed right now. Um, and it's a, it's a food bean. But the most important thing about faba beans is that they, 
Those little tiny plants like that have root systems on them that you can't believe. So I don't need to grow many of them before that, before I get something out of them. The other thing is, is that when fava beans die in the winter, they turn black and they leave black stalks. So as my snow accumulates and whatnot, the black stalks in the spring heat up and then they melt the snow and I get a warmer, that's the idea anyways. It, and it looked like it worked this last year. Okay, soil food webs. You can see, this, I, I actually made this, this is corn here. And the idea is so that you can understand what those things are doing. And you can see what's putting in. It's not about the, the, the roots don't account for a whole lot of the, of the total carbon in a corn plant. The stalks are really, you know, accumulating a lot. But look at the microbial biomass. That's over half of the microbial biomass in the soil is root-driven. So that's why we're talking about roots, because we're talking about these guys. Now, you look at the chompers on that. They're highlighted. That organism, that little mite, is going to chew through just about anything. Organic matter, each other, bacteria, fungi. But they really like organic matter that is colonized by fungi. They're going to eat that preferentially. Now, why do they care about fungi? Because actually, one thing that most people don't understand is that the fungi in the soil, not only do they form a net that builds soil structure, but they also increase the long, they actually hold on to the nitrogen longer. So they are the slow release nitrogen, are the fungi. The fungi hold on to the nitrogen, they release it more slowly. The bacteria turn over in 24 hours. The fungi take days to turn over. So they're holding the nitrogen, they're moving the nitrogen. That's why they like nitrogen, that's why they like fungi so much. So they're feeding on the fungi. Now the other thing that's really cool is that they, as, as they eat all that, they poop out these pellets. And the pellets form really beautiful soil structure. And then those pellets become the center of focus of, for more microbial activity. So we get more microbial activity. Then we get more predator-prey relationships, and we get better soil structure. So now you're seeing that pyramid I showed you, where the biology is really uniting the chemical and the physical. It's through guys like this. Now, here's the last fact. So you can see that, you know, the amount of carbon from corn roots and corn root exudates is, is actually a whole lot more than that from the stover, even, only, even though they only make up a small portion of the overall carbon budget of that plant. They're still more important in the rhizosphere. So let's think about that. What have we got there? In this slide, what you see is the relationship between the total amount of biomass produced and the total amount of carbon in the plant. And the more, the less blue you see and the tighter the ratio between the amount of nitrogen in the plant, the amount of nitrogen and then the total plant biomass. These are different mixes. <clears throat> so we tested 15 mixes and we looked at these ratios because we were interested. Because what do we want to do with this? The other thing we want to do is we want to put our nutrients into a plant, into an organic form that can be re then released when, the growing, when our cash crop is growing. And so again, now you see the phosphorus profile. You're going to look at those red bars because this is this, the rainfall zone that you're in. So look at these different mixes. And you can see that some of them really sequester phosphorus. They're really releasing it. Most of those ones have acid root exudates. So they're cleaving off the calcium, releasing the phosphorus, and we're taking it up. We're putting in the plant material. We're making it available for the subsequent crop. So here's the mixes we had. Oh, it's falling off. The last one is um, chicory and, um, let me look on my screen. Yeah, it's chicory and hairy vetch. We don't care about that one anyways because, and you actually don't care about the chicory ones at all because has anybody ever grown chicory in a cover crop? Don't ever do it. I'm glad to see no one put their hand up. It's for forage only. And don't let anybody kid you, it's perennial. There is no, it's perennial. 
It's going to be perennial, and you cannot get rid of it no matter what you do. So don't do it. So now in this slide, what this shows, so we did all those different cover crops, and then we grew wheat on top of them. We wanted to know about the quality because, after all, that's about soil health and about the nutrients that go into the plants. And did the, did, was that affected by the previous cover crop? Well, you can see it was. Not only was the yield affected, but also the quality. And that's really important because what kids want now, and, you know, just, I, I was telling another group, just check out a hipster site. It's called, you know, you, if you have teenage kids or tween kids, they'll tell you about the hipster sites. And you talk about hipsters, and these, these pit kids are actually talking about, well, my food was organic, and it was grown here, and it has this in it, and it's done this way, and it's really good for me because of XX and X. That's the future of food. People care. And we need to pay attention to our consumers a little bit. So that's why we were doing this. Because we can see in the future that this is going to be really important. The future is coming upon us very quickly. Just look at sites like um, food allergy sites and um, listen to some of the TED Talks, for example, by Robin O'Brien and how important food is for, for children and children's health and their mental capacity. That's why we do this. Now here is the picture of when you grow chicory. It's great for bees and pollinators and stuff, but it doesn't matter what we threw at it. I mean, we had high rates of Roundup, and it was still not happening. So there's your example of what not to do. OK, why to do a mix? OK, here's the turnips. Keep watching. Here's the oil seed radish, and then here's the mix, all on the same day. That's in North Dakota at the Minokin Farm near Bismarck. And you can see what happened there. Why? Because the plants are connected. Because one plant isn't trying to do everything. All the plants are sharing. Some plants are deep-rooted, some plants are shallow-rooted, and they're all sharing. So they're sharing the water, they're sharing the exudates, they're sharing the microbes. It's, it's a better deal. It's, a, it's called community. If you had to do all the services that your community provides, you'd be pretty stressed too. But if you have a whole bunch of people that are also doing the, all, all these different services, then you're better off. So this is just an example of some of the mixes. I threw in a picture of Phacelia because I'm not sure that many people here have ever seen Phacelia. I really like it. If your soil is really poorly structured, it's a great plant for structuring soil. It is grazable. It's good for pollinators, so you can reach the programs that want pollinators. It's very good for that. Well, you, actually, you can see the ladybug on there. This is my cover crop. That was taken a week ago. Um, we had some winter canola that didn't make it, and so I grew a cover crop on it. Um, that, was, that particular cover crop was seeded at the end of May, and then we mowed it, and um, that's what it regrew as we mowed it. Um, I just did a mowing because um, I didn't get a good kill on the weeds, so I just mowed the weeds to give my plants a head start. We'll get back to Jill's discussions shortly, but uh, I did want to take another moment and thank our sponsor, Thurston Manufacturing and Blue Jet Products for making this program possible. For more than four decades, Thurston Manufacturing has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found Blue Jet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.bluejet.com or call them today at 800 658 3127. Well, reflecting on Jill's comments so far, it was interesting that she challenged the philosophy that 
Diversity is essential in a cropping system. She suggests that it's worth being selective with cover crops to ensure that species are chosen that will provide the right soil benefits. Building up too much of one nutrient can negatively impact the availability of another. In the example Jill shared, she referenced a farmer who began planting buckwheat to help balance out phosphorus levels to make it more mobile in his soils. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Jill Clapperton on what makes up a plant's rhizosphere. So we're going to talk about rhizosphere here. Plants, soils, soil organisms, they are a unit all together. Anything that you do that affects the plants is going to affect soil structure. It's going to affect the plant, the or microorganism community that's associated with that. Because every plant leaks its own signature of carbon. Amino acids, you saw that. It leaks its own signature of amino acids. It leaks its own signature of organic acids. It leaks, it leaks its own signature of some really complicated chemicals. Some chemicals, for example, with corn, that when a corn root is grazed, so there's a, an insect scraping at the side of the, of the root. OK, so what happens with that? The first thing, as soon as a plant root's touched, what does the plant do? Within, within seconds, actually, it's less than a second. It has a burst of ethylene. It sends off ethylene. Why does it do that? Because it's telling every other plant in the row that there is a problem, that there are insects and they're feeding on roots. So every other plant in that row, what are they doing? They're going, oh, got the ethylene signal. It's like a smoke signal. Got the chemical signal. OK, I got to go in. I've got to reinforce the walls of my roots because there's animals that are around that are grazing, I've got to send off signals. The corn root is actually sending off very complicated signals that are saying to nematodes that parasitize insect larvae, there are insect larvae, we need nematodes here, we've got food for you. But think about this for just a minute. <clears throat> I'm a plant. I can't move anywhere. I'm stuck. So how do I defend myself? That's what they're doing. They're proactively defending themselves. They can't move anywhere, so it's not like they can run away when insect larvae start feeding on the roots. So they are defending. They are sending signals that are defending the whole time. They're sending signals that say, hey, I need plant growth promoting rhizobacteria. Hey, I need a Breda rhizobium. I'm a soybean. Hey, I need you over there because I've got a problem. I've got disease issues here. I need something for that, too. I need some um, nematodes in to feed on the disease. And they're sending signals all the time. There is a great TED Talk by Dr. Jack Schultz. So it's Jack Schultz, TED Talks, and it's conversations with insects. And what it's about, it's about, it's conversation with plants. And what he does is he shows you, he's um, the head of, well, it's, it's, a, it's an institute at the University of Missouri. And he talks about how plants talk to one another. And it's wonderful. It's, it kind of, it's kind of mind-blowing. And he's talking above ground and how the plants signal. So for example, now, we are using, in, in the vineyards in California, we're using dogs, sniffer dogs, to look for specific diseases that normally we can't find. So if we get to them, if the dogs can tell us that they're there and they're starting to colonize the plants, then we can do something about that disease. Signals, folks. Rhizosphere. It's the rhizosphere is the key to everything. So plants and soil organisms, it's the rhizosphere effect. The rhizosphere is the root, the soil attached to the root, the soil that is influenced by the root. Because remember, it's leaking all the time. So that's the soil that's influenced by the root. 
So what's going on? Rhizodeposition is a fancy word for all the stuff that leaks out of the roots. Symbiosis, mycorrhiza, rhizobium, all those things. Then we also have water and we have nutrients coming in. We have water and nutrients going out as well because when the plant is colonized by mycorrhiza, it's going the other way as well. It's coming in, it's going out, it's going to other plants. Other plants are, and then you know when those roots touch? The corn plants that don't have as much are looking at the root that has more and going, hmm, I think I'll have some of yours, by the way. And the, and the nutrients actually move from sources to sink. So if that plant is low in something, the net flow will actually be to the plant that is less. So that's how all that connection works. So this is all what's going on in the rhizosphere. Well, it's not all of it, but it's some of it. Here's that faba bean I was telling you about. See how little it is, but see the root system? And look at the rhizosphere on there, the soil that's attached. That was taken in May. So now you see we're getting to the roots of things. So you can see all these different roots here. All those plants are mycorrhizal. So I'm going to talk just to digress for a minute into cover crops because this is part of a workshop. So this is about your learning too. Millets are a warm season plant. You put too much millet in a cover crop and you're going to inhibit the growth of your corn. David Brandt proved this. And he's out of Carroll, Ohio. And one of the cover crops we had a lot of millets in, and it took four seedings to get a corn plant to germinate. If you are going to grow a cover crop, think about your rotation. If you've just grown corn and you're going into soybeans, then growing a cereal before your soybeans is a good idea. Putting that oats in that mix is a really outstanding idea. Then if after soybeans I'm going to corn, and I've grown that, then maybe I don't want to grow a whole lot of grasses. I want to grow some grasses, so maybe I'm going to mix the cereal rye or my ryegrass, and I'm going to mix it in with a bunch of broadleaves because I know that my corn is going to need a lot of nitrogen, right? And it's going to need nitrate. So if we go back to that chart, I'm going to put clovers in because the clovers have a lot of nitrate. I'm going to have oats because the oats hold a lot of nitrate. I might put radishes in and turnips and things because that is Red Bull for soil animals. And I want more mineralization. Soil animals, for whatever reason, love mustards and brassicas. They just love them. And they go crazy on them. If you ever want to build earthworm populations, just grow some of them and they will love it. But I'm telling you about millet because I had millet in this mix. Um, millet doesn't grow very well for us because we really have to struggle with the warm seasons. But um, the other thing is, is that millet does have a lot of allelopathic properties. So you do need to be careful with millet. Um, crimson clover. Crimson clover, so you're going into corn. Crimson clover grows really quickly. Um, it doesn't get eaten by much. It doesn't support a whole lot of nematodes, but it really controls weeds the next year. So just upping the mix of your crimson clover is going to give you a little bit more weed control. Um, I showed some of the other people this, um, this particular mix. These are Jesse chickpeas. Now, we're still talking about roots and the rhizosphere. So Desi chickpeas, these are the wild type chickpeas, not the kabulis. The kabulis are the big ones. The desis are the little ones, more wild type. They don't need phosphorus fertilizer because they get it by themselves really nicely. They're highly mycorrhizal, so that is going to support the corn. Um, the other thing that they do is they're very acidic roots. So they leak a lot of acids. And when they leak a lot of acids, and even to touch the plant, you know it's very acidic. It's got a lot of oxalic acid in it. And they leak a lot of acids, and that cleaves off the calcium from the phosphorus or from the gypsum, the calcium and the sulfate. And so now we're increasing the nutrient of the plant. In this case, I'm growing together. I think that growing chickpeas with corn would also be fine. The other thing is that we hear is that, oh, can't grow anything with corn because it doesn't like anything else. 
Well, that's not really true. Corn doesn't like to be touched by other cereals at all. And actually, that was shown at the University of Guelph, is that corn doesn't like to be touched by other corn. It actually relates to the greenness of the other plants, too, and it doesn't like that very much. So this is, again, plants defending themselves and defending their territory. But they don't mind legumes. That's why corn and soybeans go together. Corn doesn't mind legumes at all. They'll grow quite happily with legumes around. So you just grow some short ones like this, subtraining clover, lentils. And we've all shown, and what we showed was that when we did this, we were doing this in Nebraska. When we grew that, and we grew it to a certain level just before we were going to spray the corn. So we had these things growing up. Don't ever grow climbers in your corn. Never. Don't grow climbing plants in your corn. Um, because you'll, the next thing you'll see is all your corn doing this as the plants try and climb up it, because I've seen that. So don't grow climbers in your corn, but things like lentils, subterranean clover, um, some of these chickpeas will work really well in the corn. And they actually, they don't affect the corn. You can control it later if you want, or you can just leave it because they're not very competitive once the canopy heads up. But you're supporting the mycorrhizal fungi. And that was really interesting. That was a very interesting thing that just happened. Just a second. All right. I wondered about that. Okay. In a model grassland system, we see that actually it's the legumes that drive it. So when I'm trying to um, reclaim pipelines, for example, we use a lot of forbs or broadleaf plants because for whatever reason, they prime the soil for the grasses. I think it's because of the root exudates and they have a very different way of growing, but it really primes the soil. Um, but the thing that it says there is really important is the legumes. The legumes drive it all because it's driven by nitrogen. You hear carbon all the time. Carbon is really important. Photosynthesis is what drives everything below ground, but it's photosynthesis. And some of that's amino acids. You just saw that. Some of it's organic acids and things. So all those have carbon chains, but they also have nitrogen attached to them. And you can, if you do corn on corn on corn on corn, what are you doing? Putting a lot of carbon in the system. You're feeding all the things in your soil candy. And you're asking them to grow and live on candy. What happens if you grow and live on candy? Watch your kids when they have too much candy. Zzzz. Well, a lot of things in the soil are doing the same thing. They grow like crazy. They fizzle out. You don't get the benefit of it because you're just feeding them a lot of carbon. And what's the other thing that happens? Well, I need carbon to grow because I need the photosynthesis because I can't do that for myself because I'm a microbe now. So I'm going to use the plant photosynthate. I'm going to use that. But all I'm getting is carbon, and all I've got is carbon, and I don't have a lot of nitrogen. So I've used up all the carbon because I've used up all the nitrogen, so I've used up what carbon I can. I can't go after any more carbon because I don't have any more nitrogen. So I start looking at the neighbors. Hmm, you've got a lot of nitrogen. I think I'll have yours. So I'm a pseudomonad now, so I produce hydrogen cyanide gas, and I gas the neighbor. And then I take their nitrogen. Why not? Plants don't like it when organisms start having biological warfare. And the plants start to struggle because there's too much hydrogen cyanide gas gassing each other. And they end up gassing some of the roots. And the roots don't like it very much. So when you see lethargic corn, and you've been doing corn on corn, that's what's happening. You need more nitrogen. So pay attention to the nitrogen. And if you're going, for heaven's sakes, if you're doing corn on corn, get a cover crop in there somewhere so you have some diversity so that you can break down your stalks better. So let's talk about root temperature for a moment because we're in the rhizosphere. How many of you plant your corn or try and plant some of your corn to temperature, soil temperature? Anybody in here? Ah, interesting. Oh, there's a couple. Soil temperature is really important. Warm season plants don't like to germinate when the soil isn't 55 degrees. They just don't like it, and they don't want to. 
They do, but they really struggle and they grow slowly. And we know that we have a lot of acres to cover, so we don't have a choice all the time that we can plant all of our acres at temperature. But if we can plant some of them at temperature, that's good. Now that is all in Celsius, and I don't, I'm not going to apologize for that because the rest of the world works in Celsius. Um, but I can translate. So at 20 degrees, we're at 68 degrees soil temperature. That is optimum. Not only is that optimum for root growth, but it's also optimum for flow, mass flow in the soil. It's also optimum for your neural network of mycorrhiza. It's the optimum temperature. Most plants grow best when their roots are, when they're germinating into that kind of temperature. And they grow fast. And see all those laterals. The reason that we have all the laterals, what are the laterals about? Nutrients. You won't, a plant will not form lateral roots if it doesn't have enough nutrients to do it because it's a big energy cost. So it can't do it if it doesn't have enough nutrients. So if your corn roots don't have a lot of laterals like that, they're not all fuzzy and growing a lot of extras, it means that they're slightly deficient in nitrogen and you need to get some in there. So dig up a plant every now and again and have a look. Mycorrhiza, your underground network, not only are they gluing soil particles together, which they are, they're gluing the soil particles together because they leak a substance called glomalin that actually glues soil particles together and makes them water resistant. Look at how fat those hyphae are. Look at the size of them. And they're living inside the plant roots. Did you know that plants, that micro, plants don't resist mycorrhiza? And mycorrhiza actually grow right inside the cells. And they exchange photosynthesis and they exchange my, micronutrients. And at that exchange, the plant is saying, okay, I need some nutrients from you. So they're getting zinc and copper and all these micronutrients, including phosphorus, that the plant can't get very easily. The mycorrhizae also gluing the soil next to the plant so that it never gets dehydrated. So we're also getting more drought resistance. We're getting more exploration because the hyphae can grow really fast and explore the soil. And it's a high-speed network as long as the soil temperature is right. So increasing the amount of carbon that's released for roots. Well, one of the ways we do that is by making sure the plant nutrition is right to up. So plants that have good plant nutrition leak a lot more compounds. Plants that are colonized by mycorrhiza leak specific compounds. So when plants are colonized by mycorrhiza, they actually leak more carbohydrates, they leak more amino acids, but particularly more amino acids and organic acids. That's because when a plant's colonized by mycorrhiza, it has more plant growth-promoting rhizobacteria in and around the roots. Why is that? Because the mycorrhizae are really selfish. They need, they can't grow without a host. So they're going to protect the host at all costs, only because they're protecting themselves. So they're making that plant the best that it can be. They're making sure that plant gets everything it needs and because they need it in order for them to reproduce. When plants are colonized by mycorrhiza, they are greener, they have higher rates of photosynthesis, they take up more nutrients, there's a lot of benefit to that, and corn likes mycorrhiza. So we need to pay attention to that. <clears throat> These are all the things that plants do. When plants need iron and they need heavy metals, they send out chelators into the ground. So they can hold it and then they can take it up. There's a whole lot going on below ground that we aren't always thinking about. And that's all, all this is soil health. It's not just about the microbes, no, no. Those are primary producers. It's about the animals, yes, it's about that too. It's about the roots and the roots feeding all of that. Because without the roots, nothing exists. So let's think hard about the rhizosphere interactions. That's what's going on. Those are all the processes that are happening. We can take advantage of every one of them. I can use allelopathy to control weeds. I could grow sweet clover. I grow sweet clover. I underseed my wheat with sweet clover. And then I could have sweet clover the next year instead of a fallow and then seed winter wheat again. And in doing so, I can completely control the weeds. And I also get 32 pounds of nitrogen out of it. Pretty good, huh? Takes a little bit of doing, though. And it takes a different way of thinking. 
When yield became a critical factor, we stopped talking about food quality. Now, I can even see now in this room, I talk about quality, and everybody just kind of rolls their eyes. It used to be, when I'd say food, people would get up and walk out of the room. And I'd say, well, why? They'd say, well, I don't produce food. I produce a commodity. No, you produce food. It goes into food, somewhere into food. Maybe not. Maybe it goes into fuel. But you're producing something for a consumer. And that's, that's what this is all about. So I'm producing food. My stuff goes into food. I'm one of the farmers that are involved in shepherd's grain. And my grain goes, I sell a lot of my wheat crop to shepherd's grain. You can look up shepherd's grain on the website based on quality. We're selling based on quality. We do all the nutrient analysis of the grain. And there's a, on the back of the, wheat, uh, back of the flour package, you actually get the nutrients. Do we sell at a premium? Yeah. Does it go to places at a premium? Yeah. Los Angeles School District is all shepherd's grain. Everything done in the Los Angeles School District is shepherd's grain. Whole Foods, shepherd's grain. Are we organic farmers? No, we are not. We use every tool in our toolbox. We're all certified by the Food Alliance. We're all no-till farmers. So some of those things are happening. People are caring. And let's face it, it wasn't, I mean, nutrient output wasn't always a goal. Um, this is my last year's wheat crop. I'm standing in a 91 bushel wheat crop at 17% protein that was fertilized with 64 pounds of nitrogen. Um, wheat qual and quality now. This is work that I did in Lethbridge. All I want to show you, look at the, red, the blue bars there. Let's look at the blue bars. This is organic versus low input. And the low input is no-till. And it's just using the nutrients that we, we need from the soil test. And that's what we're really trying to do. And when we do that, this one here, these blue, this blue rotation here, has an annual cover crop slash forage crop. We actually grazed it. What I want you to look at right here, and you, oh, it's those, the top part's missing. Okay, well, this right here, this, is, this here is calcium. So this is the amount of calcium. This is the amount of zinc. Look what it did when I added a mixed forage, or what you would consider a cover crop, what it did to the quality of my wheat. You saw that from the other experiment, too. It's going to do that to your corn, too. It's going to do that for your beans. It's going to help things out. Now, the other thing you'll notice if you go to the green bars is that the organic is a lot better than my low input. That's wheat fallow. I continuous crop. I don't use wheat fallow. There's a lot of farmers in Saskatchewan and Alberta and, even, and a lot of them in Montana that still do a fallow. What is a fallow? It's a starvation period. So all the organisms have to starve themselves and go into rest because they have nothing to eat because we haven't got any carbon in there, unless we got weeds. So you can always use your weeds as a cover crop if that's what you want. And that's a lot of diversity, so it could be good. But what you notice there is that if I'm an organic farmer, I can claim that my wheat is better than yours if you're not, if you're in that system. I can claim that because it's true. But once we get into diversity, I can't claim that anymore. Because once I start diversity and once I get into the no-till, I'm the same. And there isn't any difference. And then once, if I, and one of the reasons that you'll see that organic grains, organic corn, and things like that are touted as being better too, is because oftentimes they have a green manure crop in there, which is essentially a cover crop. And for us no-tillers and, and, and strip-tillers, we're going to call that a brown manure because we're going to spray it out. And that's the benefit that we're getting out of it. And it's time to market on that. I, I really think it is. Now, there's another thing. There is such a thing as too much nitrogen. And when we get too much nitrogen, we actually don't make things quite as good. So the our whole idea here is not to use more than we need. It's to use what we need. Small meals along the way. Most of you can foliar feed. 
Most of you can side dress. Most of you can do all these other things. And we have the technology to do that. Let's use that instead of putting on too much at one time and thinking it's a good thing. This is about wheat, and some of you are growing small grains, but some of you are not. Healthy bread could save your life. This is from Europe. You can see the date on that. It's quite a while ago. This is what consumers want. They want healthy food. They want nutrient-dense food. We are actually taking wheat from the um, from um, North, and, North and South Dakota that's very high in selenium and blending it so that we get enough selenium in our wheat so that when we bake our bread, it's good selenium for, so that we can actually... So what we see... And, and this is important for, because the crowd is mostly men in here. Selenium is, is actually one of the few nutrients that's been shown to reduce prostate cancer by 30%. That's the risk. You all should be taking at least 250 units of it a day. And you can check that out. And that's what we're putting in the bread so that when people eat their bread, they're actually getting part of their daily dose of selenium. And actually, that's mandated by the European Union. So, a group of no-till farmers in France, this man here, grew the Monet cover crop. This is the Basque group in France, um, and really have pioneered the use of cover crops. And if you get a chance to look at it, it is in French, um, but he does English translations on his website. It's called TCS. And um, Frederick Thomas is just does some brilliant work in France. And if you want it, and, and you guys have about the same rainfall pattern, so it's really quite applicable for you. Celebrating the harvest. Um, if you think it, it doesn't matter. This is um, one of the no-till farmers that's part of Shepherd's Grain. This is his farm. Those tables were set by a group called Bon Appetit. They run a lot of the venues and museums and various other places. Um, they use shepherd's grain flour exclusively. And every year, they come out to one of the farms, shepherd's grain farms, and they cook dinner. All the chefs, they bring a select group of chefs, and they cook dinner for the farmers. So celebrating the harvest. Well, I'm actually harvesting, so I'm, because of our weather, our very dry weather, We've been 100 degrees for the last three weeks, which is very unusual in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we're frying up, so we get to learn about drought, just like a lot of other people here and there. Um, we're harvesting canola right now. We'll be harvesting winter, our winter wheat and winter canola, and then we'll be harvesting winter wheat in the next little while. And hopefully I won't be harvesting my spring wheat and my barley for another few weeks, but um, if this weather keeps up, just maybe. So I want to thank you all for your time today. I appreciate you coming here today, coming to listen to me, being so attentive and being so engaging. Um, so I wish you all the rain you need, the sunshine you need, and a great harvest and high-quality food to feed yourselves and your animals. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jill, for sharing your experience and advice for strengthening strip-tilled soils. And again, a reminder, if uh, you'd like to, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or the Google Play Store. This will help you get alerts when future episodes are released in this 2016 series. A big takeaway for me from today's program is the importance of doing your homework before incorporating cover crops into a strip-till system. Jill outlined several examples of how farmers experimented with different varieties to decide which one suited their operation best and would provide the most value to soil health. As with any cash crop, farmers must research the best benefit for their climate, soil type, and system. And the same is certainly true for adding cover crops in order to realize the full benefits. Well, again, I'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Thurston Manufacturing, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, and feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or call me at 
777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting farms today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on September 28th for the next episode in our 2016 podcast series, Banding versus Broadcast, Comparing Strip-Till Fertilizer Application Strategies, where Iowa strip-tillers Jeff and Clay Reince will discuss recent on-farm fertilization trials they conducted, comparing the benefits and drawbacks of banded and broadcast applications in a strip-till system. For Jill Clapperton, Thurston Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.